Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Butler's podcast. I am Mike Watkins, and with me, as always, is my good friend and business partner, Matt Burke. Hello. And this week, we're going to start things off a little bit differently. We received a really thoughtful question from one of our listeners, and I think it would lead to a, an interesting discussion. And so we are going to start with that. So the question was, is there is there a level that Bitcoin could potentially drop to that would change your mindset? For instance, if it dropped by another 50% to $10,000 or 75% to $5,000, would you still hold? We know that the Fed is going to have a CBDC within the short term. Do you believe that the Fed will allow competition with their digital currency? As hopefully you're aware, the Fed is not federal at all, but private monopolistic banking interests. So Matt, we, we knew we had this question, and I do not know what your thoughts are on this. We have not discussed this intentionally, so we could have this, uh, this discussion here. So what are your, your thoughts or answers to uh, this question from our listener? So first of all, uh, you know, I, I got to say, I really appreciate any listener that takes the time to ask a thoughtful question like this. Um, and I think that the question itself was so good that it kind of serves as a jumping off point for the show that will uh, lead into some of the things we we're t- planning on talking about anyway. Um, so to, so thank you to Michael Jack for, uh, for putting that question to us and, and we'll do our best to give you an answer. Um, I'm going to, I'll start with his question about at what price would you, you know, maybe not hold and at what level of additional drawdown would you feel like, like things are not working? Mm -hmm. And my answer to that is that I see the price as really one data point um, out of what I think is probably four important data points overall regarding Bitcoin. And, and what I mean by that is that I don't, for my personal approach, I'm not interested in selling my Bitcoin as long as I would say at least two of these four uh, things are going well. And, and, and the four things that, that I'm talking about are one price, which is one indicator, the rate of adoption of the actual Bitcoin technology, uh, not with respect to, you know, lowercase Bitcoin, the, the currency, but more uppercase Bitcoin, the network, uh, what is what's being adopted, what's being built on it. That would be the second thing. The third thing is really what level of investment and infrastructure is being developed kind of from a mining standpoint, but also from a uh, the evolution of businesses that are Bitcoin based. Are they, you know, mm-hmm. are there more or less of those uh, than there were a year ago? And then the last piece would be kind of the ESG side of things, the regulation and some of the FUD around mining uh, environmental impact and that kind of thing. So I, I think that those four items are what I'm looking at to see if, you know, my thesis that, that Bitcoin is going to be a wildly successful technology um, is still holding. And, you know, we see the price obviously has dropped significantly over the past uh, couple of months. And, and we don't like to see that happening. It doesn't feel good to see the value of what you've bought go down. Um, But at the same time, I think the other three indicators are extremely healthy. Uh, mm-hmm. so starting first with adoption, I mean, there's all kinds of adoption, not, and not just at retail, meaning that, yeah, every week we talk about different businesses 
and merchants and institutions that are uh, bringing Bitcoin into their ecosystem, whether that's to accept payments or to allow, you know, financial institutions letting their banks, uh, letting their customers trade it or hold it. Um, we see a lot of that, uh, but also just the overall adoption of the technology. And I, I saw an article recently that said that that you could see 10% of the world uh, using Bitcoin by 2030. And the way that they were looking at that is by looking at the uh, overall adoption rates of various disruptive technologies. And I think the technologies they were talking about were like, you know, the automobile, the landline telephone, the smartphone, uh, electricity, the internet. Um, and when you look at how long it took for those things to get to mass adoption, when you look mm -hmm. at Bitcoin, it's actually happening at least as fast or much faster than than many of those disruptive technologies. So from an adoption standpoint, I feel pretty good about it. From the standpoint of uh, capital flowing into the space, obviously mining industries are popping up everywhere. You've got mm -hmm. this movement by businesses that are putting a tremendous amount of CapEx um, into building mining facilities that are not just profitable, but also able to, you know, capture otherwise wasted energy. There's all kinds of, um, of investment going just in the mining space alone. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, an entire, the, the types of businesses, um, around Bitcoin that are being, uh, introduced into the marketplace at a regular rate, whether that's, um, you know, and aside from mining, whether that's software companies, application developers, um, you know, other types of businesses like ours, consulting services around, around owning Bitcoin, all of these things you're seeing happening, um, you know, on a, on a constant basis. And then lastly, from a governmental regulation standpoint, um, You've seen a lot of attempts to to detract from Bitcoin or to create some uh, fear around Bitcoin. You know, I think that we kind of agree at this point that uh, the trains kind of left the station in the sense that if the government wanted to outright ban it in the United States, mm -hmm. it would be virtually impossible for them to do it. There are too mm -hmm. many there are too many people that are using it and too many institutions that are involved with it, that it just, it's kind of past the point um, of the government really being able to do much other than kind of complain about it or, you know, put up straw men that it's bad for the environment or that it's uh, being used by criminals or whatever. But mm -hmm. all of those things, you know, are pretty easily refutable. And until there's, you know, real, uh, you know, impingement on people's ability to use Bitcoin or hold Bitcoin or spend Bitcoin. Uh, I feel pretty good about that side of things too. Uh, I thought that was a really thoughtful answer and I did not expect, um, I didn't think about a number of those things. I certainly didn't put them all together. Uh, my take on it is a little bit different. Um, maybe not as nuanced or as thoughtful, but I view it as, as Bitcoin having a bit of a binary element to it, meaning it's either going to zero or it's going to a million. Now, when we say going to a million, I ha we have to give a disclaimer. We do not give out financial advice. We are not telling you to buy Bitcoin at 20,000 because you're going to make 50 X when it hits a million. It's just my own personal thoughts that where I've done my analysis on what percent Bitcoin will take of of the global um, 
of global assets. So we have, depending, no one knows exactly, and, and obviously the value can fluctuate, but somewhere between, let's say, 600 to 800 trillion of global assets. That's real estate, bonds, equities, art, collectibles, et cetera, et cetera. Precious metal. Everything, right. So if Bitcoin takes like, like 2% of 600 trillion, uh, Matt, help me my math here. I think that puts Bitcoin at about 1.2 million a coin. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Somewhere in that so, nature. So, but, but even if you look at that and say, okay, well, if it takes 1% of those, that's 600,000 a coin. So I just, and, and there's, so unless Bitcoin is going to zero, unless you have reason to believe it will go to zero, um, then it's probably going in the other direction. That doesn't mean it's necessarily going to hit a million a coin in your lifetime. No, no, there's no uh, set schedule. It's not like a thing that's either going to, you know, by 2030, it'll either be at zero or be at a million. Obviously, we don't know timing on anything. But uh, there are a number of factors that I think indicate that it will not go to zero. And I think that the only real reason it would go to zero is if there was some way for the governing authorities to shut it down. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that if they could completely ban it worldwide and no one could use it, then it would have no value. And you can think about this problem in a number of ways. One of the ways to look at it is to compare it to, let's say, drugs. So I don't I'm I'm not familiar if there are countries where cocaine and heroin are legal. I think there's some jurisdictions here and there where it's decriminalized. But in general, we could say that cocaine and heroin is illegal worldwide. You certainly don't want to travel internationally with a pound of cocaine in your suitcase. (laughs) <laughs> highly, highly not recommended. But so, so drugs are legal everywhere. They're also extremely prevalent everywhere. Uh, I was watching a documentary about the Grateful Dead, and it was the the guy for the dead that his trick for not getting busted with drugs was to never travel with them. He said, "Anytime I go to a new city, anytime we go to a new city." We can find them. He's like, I could see a guy walking on the street, and I know that that's a guy I should go talk to. And so the the point is that any city the Grateful Dead traveled to, they could find the drugs they wanted within minutes, if not hours. And I think there's a there's some similarity there with Bitcoin, which is that even if and we've got a story coming up with uh, Morocco later, which had banned it somewhat in 2017. And and all these countries that have tried to ban it have just found it doesn't work to ban it. And and if you use that as a data point, which is can the the governing bodies actually shut this down? I think the answer is no, not at this point. And if we look back on the history of Bitcoin. We know that at one time it was used in large part to buy drugs. It was Mm -hmm. used on Silk Road for illicit activities. People found a use for it. They said, hey, uh, we can't, even though most money is, is, most of the drugs are are settled in in fiat money, but but people still found a, 
a use case for it. It was one of the initial use cases for Bitcoin. And I think that kind of leads into this next question, which is um, about the CBDC. And CBDC, for people that don't know, stands for Central Bank Digital Coin. And uh, the question we received is, do you believe that the Fed will allow competition with their digital currency? My answer is, well, they, they certainly don't want it. But I just think that with the, the way that Bitcoin is structured and with its decentralization, they can't do much about it. Now, they can stop retailers from being able to accept Bitcoin. They could stop mm -hmm. it from being able to be used as a form of legal tender. However, I think you could argue that that would actually in some ways increase the value. And people still find a way to use it. So, for example, there used to be a thing where people would give you a discount for cash. Maybe you had a, a, a plumber come to your house and to fix your, your bathtub would be $300. And if you paid him in cash, he, he would do it for $250. And I think you could see something similar to that where because it might be difficult to get your hands on Bitcoin and, and because the CBDCs inherently have restrictions involved with them, then being able to get your hands on what I'm going to call, quote, freedom money would give it a lot of value. And I think I need to back up there a bit for people who don't understand what what a CBDC is. So there's this concept that the, the reason that Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these other cryptocurrencies are popular is because they're digital. It's this new technology. It's a digital money. And I think that is ludicrous because money has been digital for many, many years. For most of my lifetime, money has been digital. When I get paid, I don't get paid in hundred dollar bills. I, there, I get I get this uh, the the number on my bank account goes up. There's an electronic deposit right. to the bank, right? And the, and the balance on my bank account goes up temporarily. And then I want to use my money. So let's say that I'm going to go to the gas station, fill up my car. Well, I either use my uh, my Apple Watch, which I really like using at the gas station, or I or I insert my credit card. There's no it's all digital. And then let's say I decide to go out to lunch that day. Once again, you give your credit card. Everything's digital already. There's very, very little transactions, very few transactions being done with cash. So this idea that Bitcoin is digital money and the CBDCs are also digital money, um, I don't think that's a great argument because money's already digital. What the CBDCs are about in a lot of ways are is CBDCs are programmable money. Right. Meaning you can be restricted on what you can or cannot buy. Now, in some situations, you could argue that's that's not a bad idea. That if you've got uh, let's say you've got someone who's got a substance abuse problem. And let's say they are an alcoholic, for example. 
and you want to say, you know what, we're going to help you. We want you to be healthy. We don't want you to be addicted to alcohol. So we are going to turn off the ability for your money to buy alcohol. And people could argue, well, that's great. We're going to, we're going to have fewer alcoholics. We are going to turn off your ability to buy other things that we don't want you to buy that are detrimental to you. Maybe if you, you know, maybe you love Twinkies and, and you weigh 400 pounds because you love Twinkies so much and your money could be set so that you can only buy healthy foods and not buy Twinkies. Or you can buy one package of Twinkies a month, not 300 packages of Twinkies, Twinkies a month. So inherently inside the CBDCs is this control over the money. And they can also turn your money off. Maybe you're a fugitive. All of a sudden, you just can't spend it anywhere. So in a lot of ways, you know, one of the great things about Bitcoin is completely uncensorable, unconfiscatable. So as the central banks start to put their, their CBDCs um, out in the world, and it will happen, I think people are going to realize very quickly that this is not they don't have the freedom that they used to have with their money that they had before sure and and one thing there is that if if you were going to if you you know if you were a recovering alcoholic and you decided that you wanted to you know remove the temptation of being able to buy alcohol through your money that's one thing it's a different than if the government decides that you're not allowed to buy Twinkies or that you hit your limit of fossil fuels for this month. So you can't buy mm -hmm. any more gas, whatever the, that mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that, that I think, you know, they're not going to happen immediately. They're not going to happen initially, but um, we also don't expect that the government is going to, uh, you know, put something like a CBDC out there and then not try to increase the, uh, the, the power that they have to, to control it. So I think that there's, um, there are certain things that could be features of a programmable currency um, and putting your dollars into that, that type of currency, you know, with certain levels of freedom intact might be okay. It's just as things, as, as, things get more and more restricted, you're going to see pushback from this kind of, uh, you know, centralization versus decentralization approach to, to the economy. Mm -hmm. And, and something else I'd like to mention about the CBDCs is that there is no reason to have them except for additional control. And the ability to print money even faster than they already do. Right. They, well, they can distribute it a little more efficiently, but I don't think most of the central banks and governments really care about being particularly efficient. I mean, they tend to find many times the most inefficient way to do things. So when, they, when, this, when this idea of these central bank digital currencies is out there, you really have to ask yourself, well, what's the purpose of these things? We already have digital money. I, I got, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of the venues now, like uh, concert venues, sporting uh, sporting venues, they say this is a cashless venue. Cashless, right? Cashless. They actually have, rever they have reverse ATMs. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we are already all digital. Let's be serious. It's the, the digital part is already here. And therefore, you have to ask, well, what is the difference with the CBDC? And we could get into some of the nuanced stuff with how did the central banks really create money and you know, buying bonds, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that's for a different episode. But when you ask the question, you know, d- will the Fed allow competition with their digital currency? My answer is not if they not if they could stop it. And then you realize that it's basically impossible to stop. They can't stop people from buying cocaine or heroin. That's a physical, tangible thing. Um, it's a lot easier to, I've never bought heroin or cocaine in my <laughs> life, but I, I'm assuming it's a lot easier for me to send you uh, Bitcoin. Like you could be in, let's just say you're in England. And we're in the U.S. It's a lot easier for me to send you a hundred dollars with uh, on the Bitcoin network than it is for me to somehow go into a part of town where I would buy illicit drugs, where I sure. physically have to be there, or someone would mail it to me, or, or however people get it. So the point is, you just can't stop it. And then even if you do, people there will be places where you go on vacation where you go and convert your dollars to Bitcoin. So like, let's say El Salvador, you say, okay, we're going to take a family trip to El Salvador. And while I'm there, every time I'm there, I'm going to convert. I don't know. I'm just going to make up a number. However much money you want to convert to Bitcoin and Bitcoin will be your freedom money. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as people start having their bank accounts frozen, or as soon as people can't, you know, are, are not able to buy the Twinkies they want, or for that matter, Illicit drugs, anything that the the uh, the government doesn't want you to have, you're going to need freedom money. And uh, Matt, I don't know if you agree, but Bitcoin to me, one of the great parts about Bitcoin is the the freedom aspect to it. Is that it Absolutely. is unconfiscatable and it is uncensorable. And you know, we saw some things. We don't want to be political, but we saw some things happen in Canada where people did have their money and their bank accounts frozen, and people freaked out. There was actually, a, I'm pretty convinced, there was a run on the banks in Canada. It wasn't reported much, but I saw some oh. images of people lined up. I know they shut down their ATM networks, and so people are going to freak out. People are going to freak out if their bank accounts get frozen. People freak out if they can't buy their Twinkies. And they will. I actually think that the introduction of the CBDC it could be a real benefit to uh, to Bitcoin. Absolutely. I think that I, I don't think that it's realistic for the Fed to think that they can issue a CBDC and at the same time um, somehow, you know, shut down Bitcoin. It's just, it, it's not going to happen. It's not, it can't happen. They can try to do it, but as we've seen in other places time and again, that, you know, banning it or saying you can't interact with it, um, doesn't really have an effect if people want to, um, want to access Bitcoin. And unless you're going to shut off their internet, it's really difficult to do it. And even in that case, there are ways to to use Bitcoin without the internet. So it's Mm. just very, very challenging. And I think, um, again, going back to what I was saying with the amount of um, 
capital that's flowing into this mm-hmm. space, the the special interests that prop up the Fed and the politicians that you know make financial decisions for our country. Um, it's just going to be, there's just too much there. There's too much critical mass for that to be able to just go away at, you know, the snap of the feds fingers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Michael Jack was absolutely correct that the federal reserve is, is not federal and, you know, it's not in reserve necessarily, (laughs) but, um, but, um, but I think that that's going to be a different experiment. I know that, you know, the, the, Massachusetts Fed is working on a CBDC, um, but you know we're just going to have to see what that looks like and 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 see how far they're willing to go to try and uh, you know stamp out other cryptocurrency competition. How long do you think it would take for them to get a CBDC that actually works in the U.S.? The government isn't great at rolling out technology. Particularly bad at rolling out technology. I mean, I would think that you know uh, there are political issues that could obviously cause it to happen faster or slower. Um, but I think if you know if everybody agreed at the government level that they wanted to roll out a CBDC, um, I think it could happen in realistically three to five years. Okay, so I you're saying three to five years. I was going to say two to three years. So do we agree that it's at least twenty four months to roll it out? At, at least, least, yeah, at least. And then, and I was going to say three to four, but four, you know, that sounded like maybe too short or tight of a window. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's it's several years. It's not a year from now. It's not two years from now. It's something slightly longer than that, but probably not longer than four or five mm-hmm. years. Okay. So let's just say for the sake of this discussion, it's somewhere between two to three years, just to be more conservative. So where where is Bitcoin in two to three years? Well, we know we're going to have a halving and we know it's going to be, um, it's going to have the highest stock to flow ratio of any asset on the planet. And if you believe in the halving cycles, then, you know, who knows where it could be trading. Um, But I also think that there's something I'd like to bring up with that, which is that Bitcoin is very unique and the infrastructure that's being built right now is, is very unique because the institutions are building infrastructure, but they're not buying Bitcoin. Now, of course, there are institutions that are buying it. MicroStrategy bought another $10 million worth of Bitcoin today. Uh, Tesla owns Bitcoin. There are a number of companies that have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. But realistically, this is the first time that the retail investor is able to front run the institutions. And Mm -hmm. let me give an example of what I mean by that. So, Back when uh, in the late 90s, when the dot-com boom was going crazy and IPOs were like getting your hands on on an IPO was really, really hard. And the way it would work would be that basically the connected and richest people got their hands on the IPOs and whatever the company was, even if they were garbage companies, uh, let's say the stock would come out at 20 they were able to buy it at 20 and by the end of its first day of trading, it was trading at like 50 or 60, like a two and a half right. to 
3x thing. And it was just happening with regularity. Even things that just crashed and burned like a web van, you know, where, which, which is actually kind of around right now. It just took 20 years to get there. But, sure. but these things came out and you could not get your hands on these, these IPOs. And, and what they did was like a company like Goldman Sachs, and we'll use, we'll use uh, Webvan again as this example, would say, okay, we want a million shares. You know, we want to buy a million shares of the IPO. And so they would buy them and they would distribute them some to themselves and some to their best clients. Mm -hmm. I could never, I tried, I was never able ever to get my hands on IPO stock. I could buy it after it hit the market, but I was never able to get it before it, it hit. And so what happened was that, you know, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and all these other companies were able to get in long before the consumer could get in. But this time it's different. This is really amazing because the consumer is actually able to buy, and I guess Bitcoin's around twenty thousand dollars right now, is able to buy Bitcoin before Apple can buy Bitcoin. And Apple, I haven't looked at their balance sheet recently. I think Apple is about two hundred and fifty billion on their balance sheet. I know it's over mm -hmm. two hundred billion on their balance sheet. In cash. In cash. Cash cash. So if Apple decides to put 1% of their balance sheet into Bitcoin and Google decides to put 1% of their balance sheet into Bitcoin. And let's just say the, you know, the top 100 companies in the S&P 500 similarly decide to put 1% of their balance sheet into Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin worth at that point? I would say minimum half a million a coin based on number of factors. Cause when you put yeah, a, sounds about right. You know, so, so when you talk about kind of going back to that first question, like if it dropped to 10,000 or 5,000, would you still hold? My answer is yes. Now that's my personal thing. Once again, not investment advice. I, I would hold unless I thought it was going to, unless there was some way to stop and it was going to crash and burn and go to zero. And we've seen from, Bitcoin's history that Bitcoin has really survived some really crazy, crazy things in its history. And at times where it's a lot less sophisticated and advanced than it is right now. So the whole uh, Silk Road being shut down, the whole Mount Gox meltdown are the first two that come to mind. Mm -hmm. And it survived that. And then you can also, I think a lot of people who hold Bitcoin have done this this particular type of fantasy in their head. I know I have, which is that in 2020, Bitcoin was trading for 3,800 a coin. Mm -hmm. And I've done this calculation where I was like, okay, well, how many of those could I have bought? And you like to think that when you saw it at 3,800, that you would have been the person saying, okay, I am loading up here and I'll buy a, a, you know, X number. But realistically, you should ask yourself the question, would I have bought any? If I saw a crash, I think it hit about 20,000 that last cycle, crashed down to about 3,800. Would you have bought any under 4,000? And I think for 99% of the people, the answer is absolutely not. Why would you? Correct. Yeah. People get way too scared in those situations and, and mm. assume that that's the, that if it's, if it went from 20 to 3,800, it's going to go to zero, is kind of 
the mindset mm-hmm. of a lot of people. And so I think very few people come in at those levels, um, which goes back to my point, which is that you can't just look at the price in that case. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that, you know, if we're at 20,000 now and it were to go down to 5,000, I would be looking at what are the other real fundamental indicators in the ecosystem that tell me that it's, it's heading towards zero. And again, you know, if you've got a hash rate that's over, you know, 200, um, it's hard for me to get my head around the idea that this is a useless thing that nobody is using or cares about. Yes. And then we, we, we didn't touch on any of the geopolitical things that are going on in the world right now. Uh, there's this coalition called BRICS, which I believe is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And they're getting together to form like a, I don't know, Matt, what, what word would you use for it? So like a coalition, a secondary yeah, coalition financial already. system. And, and when you're talking about just uh, China, India together, I think that's like over 2 billion people. Mm-hmm. And you throw in Brazil, Brazil's about, about 200 million people. So you're talking about two, about 2.5 billion people, about a third of the world, a third of the world right? on the system. And, and one of the things that obviously is conflict, a number of conflicts in the world right now, one of the things I was thinking about this week is that the world is going to need neutral money. And the only neutral money that I know of is Bitcoin because central banks can print more money. You know, the, the U.S. central bank, if it wants to buy more oil, it can just print more dollars just to buy that sure. oil. And the people selling the oil are, are basically getting it with what's essentially in some ways counterfeit money, right? It's diluted money. And so it, it's reasonable to think that for countries that do not trust each other or for countries that have this out of control money printing, that neutral money will be needed. And we do have a neutral money in the world right now. That is gold. It's been around for 5,000 years. However, gold has a lot of problems and it's very difficult to transact in gold, but a neutral money that's easy to transact in and fast and settles within 30 minutes is Bitcoin. And I think its role, I think it's going to have a very significant role there. And I think it's going to be one of the situations where it's gradually then suddenly, meaning not much happens, not much happens, not much happens. And all of a sudden it just, things go crazy. So I hope that that answers uh, that question, which is, you know, if it dropped to 5,000, will you still hold? And I think both of our answers are yes, as long as the other fundamentals look good. Yeah, that's my answer. And so hopefully uh, to our listener who asked the question, we answered it. And um, if not, then keep giving us questions. We'll try to answer them. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I thought that was a really good, a really good uh, way to, to kind of kick off the show and, and talk mm-hmm. through kind of how we, how we view Bitcoin in the world today. So mm-hmm. um, with that, you want to move on to, uh, to some of our adoption news. Let's do it. Okay. So uh, we're going to talk uh, about th- We really only have four this week. Uh, 
we've had a few more in previous weeks, but um, in terms of what we're looking for for adoption, we felt like these were the, the best four. So I'm just going to jump into them. So the first one is crypto more popular than mutual funds among millennial survey shows. So um, this was a survey that was done for, uh, for millennials that, you know, are basically aged, you know, 25 to 40 ish range. Um, you know, folks that were born in the, uh, the eighties and nineties and, um, the, the survey asked them, you know, basically what assets they were investing in, uh, 40% of them own some sort of cryptocurrency. A uh, large percentage of that I thought was interesting is in held in IRAs. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're, um, and there are more more of those respondents to that survey um, had investments in in Bitcoin and other crypto than they did in mutual funds. Yeah, and I, I think part of this. First of all, I thought the most interesting thing in that article was the fact that so many of them held it in an IRA. Really surprised mm -hmm. to hear that. I, I was wished that we could get a few more details on that as far as how they're doing that because it's that's not. Uh, uh, a particularly developed industry right now. It's not that easy to hold it in your IRA. There are ways to do it, of course. So I was surprised that that, uh, that was so common. The other part of that is I think it ties into that first question, which is that, you know, can the, uh, you know, is it going to go to zero and can the government stop it? And if you've got 40% of the people between the ages of, I think it's like 26 and 41, same thing. Basically, if you're born in the 80s or 90s, you're a millennial. 40% of that group owning it already, and it's only going to increase because the, the adoption for crypto only goes in one direction. Until we see it going in a different direction, we're going to assume it only goes in one direction. Sure. And uh, you're going to have, these are people that can be running the world. In just a few years, I mean, already if you're 40 plus, you're, you're going to have uh, a significant, uh, you've moved up from your starter job. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, <laughs> everyone gets older, people, people get old and move on. I mean, they retire, they pass away, but the, the future is with the youth and Considering that the millennials are forty percent already have it, and a number already have it in IRA, I think it gets exponentially more difficult to remove that from society and from the public consciousness. And Absolutely. I thought this was yeah. really interesting data, really kind of fascinating data. That I did not. Yeah, and I agree about the IRA. And I would imagine that most of those IRA holders are either they're holding, you know, something like Grayscale in their IRA, or they've opened up some sort of crypto IRA with some of these um, specialized providers. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I thought that was really interesting that, um, you know, if somebody's in that age range and they've got savings, that this is something that they're, they're likely to, to put their money into. Mm. And so. a bit of a, uh, one second, a bit of a shameless plug here is that yeah. Bitcoin butlers can help you put your Bitcoin into an IRA. We are 
very familiar with the different options that are out there and we can help guide you or help you set up uh, the way for you to store Bitcoin and other digital assets in your IRA. Yeah, there, there are a few ways that you can do it. Um, and as we always recommend, the ways that we would help you do it will allow you to hold your own keys to your Bitcoin um, mm -hmm. within your IRA. That is uh, That can be done um, with some very specific setup. Um, but uh, yeah, happy to help do that for sure. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go to the next one. Um, I, I thought this was interesting. When New Bank now allows 53 million Brazilians to buy Bitcoin. Um, and the thing that I thought was, uh, was interesting about this one is that Warren Buffett is a uh, large investor. Berkshire Hathaway is a large investor in New Bank. And, you know, if anyone follows this space at all, you know that Warren Buffett um, and his right hand man, Charlie Munger, have been, you know, unabashed critics of Bitcoin, calling it everything from rat poison to worthless to, you know, Warren Buffett saying that he wouldn't buy every Bitcoin for twenty five thousand dollars total. Um, so it's um, it's always interesting to see these uh, these news articles where people who are coming out and saying one thing, you know, that are vehemently against it. Um, going ahead and putting money into businesses that are very much for it. Exactly. You know, what, what's the saying? Uh, watch what, don't watch, don't listen to what they say, watch what they do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Brazil, I believe has about a little over 200 million people. So this would, if this would give about a quarter of Brazil, the ability to buy Bitcoin from a significant, from a super large bank. It's really significant. Yep. And and we can go into that same thing back to that, our same question before, where it's like, it, the, one of the things people don't realize about Bitcoin is it's it's a global asset. We think about things in terms of the country we live in, and people in the U.S. tend to be really focused on the U.S. It's sort of like the world revolves around us, and in some ways, there is some truth to that. But when you realize that Bitcoin is, is going global and there are 190 something countries in the world and it's going to, it's already legal in two and some other jurisdictions completely, it's legal tender there, I should say. Yep. It's just, you can't put a lid on it. I just don't believe you can. Now, never underestimate the power of government, but it seems that as these things come out and we see it in different countries, it's just going to get exponentially harder and harder and harder for any one country to say no. And even if that one country does say no, which is certainly a possibility, it, it won't necessarily have that much of an impact. Yeah. I think another thing worth mentioning on this is that, um, you know, in the United States for the most part, um, compared to the rest of the world, certainly we have a pretty incredible standard of living. We have um, pretty um, extraordinary economic uh, development and growth. And most people in this country, um, even the ones that are not well off by U.S. standards are still better off than, than much of the world. And when you get into economies that are um, more volatile and more 
um, more, even more hyperinflated than, mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. we are. Cause I don't even know if you get hyperinflation is, is par is a hyperbolic term mm -hmm. in that sense. But when you look at many countries around the world, whether it's Turkey or Lebanon or, or Zimbabwe, some South American countries, Zimbabwe, you've mm -hmm. got, you know, the purchasing power that goes away on a daily basis is measurable. And then you, that gets compounded by the fact that the quality of life and the standard of living in these places to begin with is, is not great. And so if you don't have much to begin with, and then it's getting inflated away at a very fast rate, then you're giving, you know, by, by introducing these economies to Bitcoin, you're giving those people the ability to store value in a way that, that over time is, is going to stay intact. Now it's a little harder argument to make when those people might've got into it when Bitcoin was $60,000 and now it's 20,000. And so maybe it's a little harder argument to articulate because, because it appears to be that volatile. So, you know, if you're spending it, um, in your daily life and it's highly volatile, then, you know, that, that makes it a little more challenging, but, you know, people in the U S like to talk about how, um, Oh, Bitcoin is so expensive and Bitcoin is for, you know, wealthy elite investors. But the reality is that Bitcoin's for everybody and maybe more so than the ability for somebody in the U S to make a profit or to invest in something that's going to go up over time. It really is giving, many people around the world and less developed countries, the ability to, to keep some of their, um, some of their wealth and to be able to have money that is not tied to their government. Um, that's mm -hmm. just getting, you know, massively inflated. Mm -hmm. So, uh, my opinion, a very positive story. Um, I love to see it. Good. All right. Keep going. Next one, uh, Breitling. It seems like every week we have a new watch uh, manufacturer, a luxury watchmaker who's allowing you to buy an expensive watch in Bitcoin. So this week it's Breitling. Um, I think we had Ublow and uh, Tag in prior weeks. Um, but, you know, there's constantly uh, new watchmakers that have said, look, we're going to um, we're going to sell our fancy watches and some of the people that are buying them want to be able to pay using Bitcoin or, or other crypto. And so um, we're just going to add that ability to our marketplace so that folks who, uh, who want to buy a watch with Bitcoin can do it. Mm. Well, we're definitely seeing a trend here. I think that's interesting. It's once again, it's BitPay. So in some ways it's, it's almost just the, the BitPay news. Like, well, you know, who has, <laughs> Uh, who's using BitPay now? But I, I think that what we're seeing in with the luxury watches will be interesting moving forward. And I'm going to say the luxury brands. We're seeing more and more of these luxury brands adopting a way to pay for their goods other than Visa, Mastercard, American Express, etc. I mean, I don't think these companies have any real commitment to Bitcoin. I don't think they really care what what you pay with. But uh, considering what's going on globally with the economy, obviously discretionary spending is going to, or just, just discretionary income is falling. And uh, it, these luxury these luxury good makers need to be able to access whatever kind of payment 
people have. I mean, does it really make a difference? And I know we've said this before. It doesn't really make a difference on what they're what they're being paid with, as long as they receive the value. And I'm I'm assuming almost all of it gets converted to fiat immediately. So, right. I mean, I think difference. they're reacting. Right. They're reacting to customers saying, "Can I pay this way?" And there and and no smart business when a customer says, "I want to buy your product." but I really only want to buy it if I can pay you this way. Um, you know, I don't know many businesses that would say, well, I don't want you to be able to pay me that way. Mm. I, you know, <laughs> so it's just a way to capture more, more customers. Yeah. I view it a little differently and I'm not saying that, that I, I disagree with what you're saying. I just, my view on it is that um, when you're in business, any business, I don't know of many businesses that are not hyper competitive at this point. Any mature business is going to be, you know, hyper competitive. Meaning, there's competition between uh, Tag Heuer, Hublot, and Breitling, and, and all of the other luxury watchmakers. And so, if you know that uh, Tag is doing it, and you know that Hublot is doing it, well, you don't want to be left out. So you want to jump on it also. And, and that's why I think it's interesting about these luxury brands doing it, that it seems to be part of the, the news every week. And I think part of it is just, uh, I'm going to call it the, I don't know if it's the best term for it, but like the lemming theory, that people will just follow. You're going to have your initial person, the, the pioneer, and then you get, um, that goes from one person doing it to two, and then it goes from two people doing it to four. And at some point you just feel the pressure. Like, I don't really want to do this. I don't really care about it. If I had my choice, I wouldn't be doing it, but, um, we still have to incorporate this into our, our payment rails, uh, because the other guys are doing it. Yep. I agree. Um, all right. Well, let's go to our last one, um, which is Morocco. Morocco is going to bring cryptocurrency regulations soon, which I guess doesn't really tell us a whole lot other than the fact that they're going to do something. But what I thought was interesting about this is that uh, Morocco in 2017 banned Bitcoin and cryptocurrency transactions. So you weren't allowed to, to buy Bitcoin, to transact in it. Um, and because we've seen in other places when you, you know, ban or limit Bitcoin, it doesn't tend to do a whole lot. Um, it seems like there's been enough interest from within Morocco for people to be able to use these types of technologies that now the government is saying, all right, well, rather than try to ban something that we know we can't ban, we're going to regulate it in a way that allows us to feel comfortable letting our, our citizens use it, which, you know, regard, I don't want to get into a discussion about the, the, whether that's a good or bad thing for governments to regulate it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd rather talk about that when we have some real regulation to to discuss because this is just you know something that might happen. Um, but um, but again, you know, we I, I I've talked about this and and I I don't know if you agree, but but my view on this is that ideally there is no regulation; it's a free market, right? But the real world answer is that if we want Bitcoin to work 
within the existing system to the point where it can then grow within the existing system, you have to let governments have their say. Now, does that mean I'm okay with the government coming in and banning it? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that if you have reasonable oversight in a way that actually, you know, helps the, the adoption, then I'm in favor of that. And so I think from that standpoint, this is, this is Morocco to me saying, well, five years ago, we tried to ban it. That didn't work. Too many of our people want it. So we're going to come up with a framework that we're okay with that we think will protect our citizens um, and, and go from there. And so to me, that's a, that's a positive move. Mm-hmm. And I, I read it that uh, I, I believe less than two and a half percent of their citizens use it. So it's not like what we talked about earlier with 40 percent of millennials in the U.S. I mean, it's a really pretty small part of their population is using it. And and to go from banning it and having any transaction be illegal five years ago to coming up with regulation for it. We've seen this in other places before. If this is not a new story. This is just Morocco's version of this story. <laughs> right. And and that also ties back into to the discussion we were having earlier, which is like one of the things that, make, well, that makes Bitcoin so unique is that it doesn't have a CEO. It doesn't have any employees. It doesn't have anyone that you, whose arm you can twist. And every 10 minutes, it puts down a new block. You just can't stop this thing. And governments worldwide tend to be not the best at solving any problems, <laughs> right? They're not great. They are not great at finding solutions. They're good at making problems worse. Most of the time, they'll make problems worse. But you're, but but you're, but but also governments are run by regular people, in in you know democracies. These are people who get elected. Their skill set is to be charismatic and to be able to get you to vote for them. But it doesn't mean they've got a good understanding of economics, or 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 a lot of other things. Which is why you get these crazy laws, is because you're asking people who know almost nothing about something to, to create the rules for something. But here's the problem. You're dealing with pretty regular people, even if you're dealing with very smart, some, some very smart people. But what's the game plan for dealing with something that we've never had on the planet before that you can't control? Right. Like you can't send in a hit yep. squad to to capture their chief developer or whoever yeah, you can't raid the headquarters right. can't raid headquarters there's a better way of putting it. you can't do anything like that can't put someone in a room and say that's a beautiful family you have there it should be a shame if something were to happen to them <laughs> and and when you can't do that and you can't shut it off then you have to find a way to coexist and that's what we're seeing in we've seen it in India, we've seen it in Morocco. Uh, I, I know their account. Well, we saw in China they banned mining, and then all of a sudden, two months later, twenty percent of the the hash rates in China. So, you know, these countries really can't stop it. 
And as time goes on, I really believe that as as we see this this incremental adoption, even a country like the Central African Republic, which I believe is like they go live in July, mm-hmm. it's all these other outlets to do it. And there, there's also significant benefit for other countries that, you know, there are a lot of countries in the world that use dollars that don't necessarily want to be using dollars. So right. as this stuff goes on, we're going to see this this story play out just like we see the luxury brands adopting BitPay and adopting adopting other cryptocurrencies and the ability to pay with Bitcoin. We're going to see the same story, I think, in more and more countries. And I do think it's it's important to watch the countries where it's happening and, and to pay very close attention to these stories. I think they're extremely significant, even if it doesn't move the price, at least for the short term. Sure. No, I, I agree. And, and, you know, again, with Morocco, you're talking about less than a million people um, that are currently using it. But, um, you know, a lot of that, that number might be limited by the fact that, that there's, you know, the government's banned it in the past. And, and maybe that will lead to more adoption as those regulations change. We'll see. So what's the, so the, what's the population of Morocco? It's about 40 million, a little less. Okay. Right. So, so still a million people, a lot of people. That's still a a pretty large aggregate number. It's not insignificant in that country. I mean, it might be, you know, I mean, they're not an insignificant country. I mean, it's not like, you know, if so, I'll put it to you this way. If, if the announcement a, a couple months ago had been Morocco was accepting, was, you know, accepting Bitcoin as legal tender versus the Central African Republic, it would have been, uh, I think, a lot more bigger news. The biggest news, some of the biggest news ever <laughs> in the history of Bitcoin, in my opinion, right, if, right. if Morocco had adopted as legal tender. <laughs> and we will see that. I do really do believe we will see some countries doing this. I, I think that there's so much... There's so much turmoil and chaos in the financial markets right now. We haven't seen the shakeout yet. We don't even know how this is going to play out. To be honest, some of it's above my head. <laughs> even though I, I I spend a lot of time studying it, some of it is just all the world economies are tied together. And there's some really weird stuff going on in Japan right now. There's weird stuff going on with the U.S. bond market. There's a lot of... Oh, yeah unusual things going on and i and what the landscape looks like in two years five years ten years i don't know but it, it it's certainly going to look a lot different than it does today i agree i agree well good uh, anything else you want to talk about yeah i think the one thing that's on my mind right now is this i'm kind of fascinated with this this BRICS thing. Um, you know, the, the US dollar has been the global reserve currency for, I don't know how long it's been. It's been since Bretton Woods in 44. At least, yeah. At least, right? So let's just say 60, 70 years or so. It doesn't really, it's actually longer. Um, Probably close to 80 years. Close to 80 years. And, and I have a feeling that this is rapidly changing. And I know people have the opinion that's already happened that, you know, there've been a number of, of incidents that happened that people say that, you know, this happened back in February that the, that the dollar was no longer the world's reserve currency, but, but it still kind of is t- 
today. Sure. Uh, where things go with this and this this um, coalition of India, China, Russia. I think that is really something to watch because you you now have these this this sort of adversarial relationship between the U.S. and and Europe and that coalition and this other new emerging coalition, mm-hmm. and we're also starting to see that we have the central banks in all these countries just printing money. And they they seem to be somewhat coordinated, meaning everyone's kind of doing the same thing. Everyone's is printing up a lot of new money, and, and you sort of have to because if if the U.S. is printing a lot of money and you're I'm just going to pick like Europe, you're not, then they can just come in and buy all your assets, right? You kind of right. have to do that to protect yourself. Yeah. And there's kind of a cat and mouse game there too, where it's like, mm -hmm. okay, well, uh, you know, we print money here in the U S and then some other central bank says, Oh wait, they just printed money. Now we got to do it so that our purchasing Mm -hmm. power doesn't get, get eroded against the dollar and all of that. So it's, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's a waterfall effect there. Right. And the way that I think that game ends is by having this neutral money and we know what this neutral money is. And there's going to be, I don't know when, but my prediction is there's going to be some kind of event where all of a sudden Bitcoin is going to be a solution at a countrywide level, (laughs) not adopting as legal tender, but to, to transact between countries or what I think is going to happen is is uh, we're going to move towards um, uh, the value of countries being their commodities, what they're able to sell to other countries. We're starting to sure. see that a bit yeah. right now. So that's that's what's on my mind right now. That's what I'm paying attention to, and that's what I find fairly interesting. And I know that news kind of came out this week or last week about that coalition. No. All right, Matt. Well, can you tell people right. where and how to find us, please? Absolutely. We are on the web at btcbutlers.com. You can email us there, info at btcbutlers.com. On Twitter, at btcbutlers. Uh, DMs are open on Twitter. If you are watching us on YouTube, please subscribe and like. Um, and on any other podcast uh, platform that you might be listening to, please uh add us and, and listen. If you have questions, uh, put them in the comments, email us like you saw in this episode. We would love nothing more than to uh, answer listeners questions and make that our topic of discussion. Um, and then from the standpoint of Bitcoin butlers, what can we do for you? Well, we can help you implement best practices for holding your own Bitcoin, whether that's buying, storing, inheritance, planning, running your own node. Um, with the uh, emphasis there being on our sovereign inheritance planning process, which allows you to develop a roadmap um, so that your heirs can find your assets should something happen to you. And especially um, if you are an owner of Bitcoin or other digital assets, uh, we can help you create that roadmap so that your coins are not lost when, when you pass away. So uh, again, thanks for listening and we would love to hear from you and we will see you next time. Thank you, Matt. Bye.